If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast formerly known as Romaniacs, where everything is coming up roses after Don and Dom will be the next right-wing gargoyle to get the boot. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. We have a no-guest, all-regular show for you this week. New signing, Minnie Raman, is from the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, everyone. Um, over the weekend, anonymous Home Office officials expressed their concern that hardline immigration tactics are threatening the welfare of children and families crossing the channel. Um, Home Office whistleblowers don't... Uh, unfortunately, always get the results they want. Do you think this will uh, make a difference? I mean, you would think that the Home Office, with all their posturing about learning the lessons of Windrush, would have actually done something to change its behaviour by now. But I kind of do think whistleblowers will make a difference. You know, I'm glad that we're seeing a new cohort of whistleblowers coming out of the Home Office, because there's just so much we don't know about their practices. This story and other stories about, you know, like Pretty Patel wanting to use jet skis and wave machines to control the channel are, are good examples. And actually, just before recording, another story broke about the Windrush compensation scheme being racist in its implementation and the civil servant resigning because of it. So I really strongly encourage any whistleblowing because the Home Office is notoriously shadowy and it's time that we were all on an even footing. Is there any hope that Pretty Patel this Christmas will be visited by three ghosts that make her see the uh, the error of her ways? Or we yeah, have to rely on other people? <laughs> I hope the bullying report comes out and that has um, some impact on whether or not she stays in post. Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, Naomi Smith is CEO of Best of Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi. You are on deal watch again, lashed to the mast. Uh, late, late on Monday, David Frost reportedly told Johnson to expect a deal early next week if there's to be one at all, but the same sticking points remain. It's now midweek. Are there any developments or are we going to be talking about this next week with the same issues? Uh, well, look, yeah, you're right. We've heard all week now that the deadline, the, the really, really hard, hard, can't go past it deadline is the 23rd of November, so early next week. But of course, with the threat that things could rumble on right up until the 28th of December. Uh, but there have been rumours about developments on both fish and level playing field this week. And I do still think that Johnson does want a deal. Uh, with apologies to those that listen to the bunker who might have sort of heard me say this already, but on state aid, we're pretty confident of getting an agreement on things like an independent UK enforcement authority, dispute mechanisms and retaliatory measures that would kick in while arbitration was in train. And the Westminster gossip mongers, mostly over the weekend, were peddling the idea that it's going to be a temporary deal uh, that might be negotiated uh, this week and announced next, crucially within the current legal framework, uh, so that it wouldn't have to, you know, go go right back to the beginning again and through all of the member states. Um, and that would hopefully see us through the worst of the p- pandemic with a much fatter deal being worked up, ready for the second half of 2021. Thanks, Lemmy. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk and author of How to Be a Liberal. Hi, Ian. Hello, hello, hello. So there's been some drama in the Labour Party. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. On Tuesday, a uh, five-person NEC panel rescinded Jeremy Corbyn's suspension from Labour, but then Starmer decided not to restore the whip. Um, did the party screw up by rushing the disciplinary process? And what can Starmer do about it? It's not clear that he can do anything. I mean, the, the thing that Labour spokespeople are saying is that he can't control um, when the party proceeds with these disciplinary processes. However, what the Labour spokesperson was also saying is... Um, that they want to clear the backlog in a, in the system before you go in, before you get to the new disciplinary system, which will be sometime in the new year, right? But what that really means, I mean, that it, that just can't make any sense on its own terms. Because what that means is they accept that the current system is not fit for purpose, but they're still going to chuck all of these cases through it. So you're denying, you know, by having him go through it, and and let's face it, like it. It was all a bit fucking murky. Like, you know, he comes out with the statement um, that he released yesterday. This, you know, basically almost like a tick box statement of going through the bits that he thought was required for him to be able to get back in. Then instantly he goes through this process, which other people have had to wait months to go through. And suddenly he comes up smiling, you know, smelling like roses. You sort of think, well, that that kind of that kind of stinks. But also, I mean, the late Starmer's own positions don't really seem to make any sense. Can you clarify why, exactly on what basis Corbyn was suspended and on what basis he has been reinstated? Because there's been a lot of confusion about that. The case was uh, to bring the party into disrepute, um, which is a very broad category. Okay, I mean, it's basically something, and and all parties have this. You have the same thing at sort of cabinet level. You have it all over the place. Because basically what people love it, because it basically means whatever the fuck you want it to mean, right? I mean, anyone can be said to bring the party into disrepute for almost anything. Um, so it's extremely broad on these terms. On the specifics, as you can see by virtue of the response that Corbyn put out, the main thing was going against suggesting that it had been anti-Semitism had been overplayed in the media, um, and that this was some part of a conspiracy, you know, by political enemies. Uh, so it, it now looks like he's been brought off from that. That there would still be questions for him to answer on the points in the report itself. For instance, the fact that he presided over this system in the first place, and secondly, that there were um, moments when the leader's office got involved in order to clear him of specific accusations of antisemitism in reference to the mural they liked on Facebook. Um, he's now been. They've now decided that's not the case. Starmer, however, still has the power to take away the whip from him because what Starmer does control is the parliamentary party. And that's the part that he's taken. I mean, it looks a bit, I have to say, like he took it in a bit of a frenzy of, of nervousness rather than at a point of principle. But there's no basis to say that apart from the sequencing of events. Um, and obviously it's been quite depressing that the issue of anti-Semitism has all been sort of, you know, reduced down to this issue of, uh, of whether this one man is in or out. Um, over the weekend, something similar happened where Diane Abbott was criticised for appearing on a webinar held by a group called No Cold War alongside someone who denied that China was persecuting Uyghur Muslims. And if you look at the list of no Cold War signatories, it, it's, a, it's a nightmare. And it's full of people who, uh, not exclusively, but it contains many people who deny or excuse state crimes in China, Syria, and so on. Um, does the focus on, on Abbott, who is, you know, she's a, she's a real lightning rod for criticism, um, distract from the bigger problem and that really we're, we're just going to spend, we spend all our time arguing about Jeremy Corbyn or Diane Abbott and not these sort of deeper issues in the, in the labor movement. To a certain extent, that's true. And it, and it sort of conceals the, this trend, not just in labor, but across the left of basically saying that the enemies of the West, i.e. Russia, i.e. Syria are sort of uh, 
countries that you do not adopt any kind of critical appraisal of. And that itself is very pernicious. It goes way, way back. In fact, you can find it all the way through the Cold War um, and isn't really addressed by looking exclusively at the personalities. But the really disturbing bit is with both Haber and you're seeing it with Jeremy Corbyn right now is this defensive tribalism that people clearly don't put in even a fucking second's thought into thinking what the morality of the situation is, what the political rights and wrongs of the situation are. They just think they're one of us. They're on my team. So therefore, I go out and I go on the attack. Now, you look at it in the Corbyn situation today. There isn't the slightest second of thought about the fact that this is supposed to be about what Jewish people have gone through. And that's where the, the moral origin of this is. That's what the subject matter of this is. Instead, the conversations that take place are all basically, um, this is an attack on Corbyn, or this is an attack on the left, as if they are the victims of what took place in the Labour Party. So again, you get that sense of just what tribalism does to the human brain. It just corrodes its moral capacity. And you can see evidence of that on both of these stories happening all the time on social media. Is there perchance anything in your book about how tribalism grows the human brain? <laughs> this, this is actually a subject that I've expressed some interest in before. I don't know. Yeah, I picked up on that. In the show this week, Dominic Cummings and his big box of left Downing Street, as is his former Vote Leave colleague, Lee, who he, Kane. Can <laughs> Boris Johnson really turn over a new leaf? And what does the post-Dom government look like? And there's not one but two COVID-19 vaccines on the horizon, even as many countries struggle with a wintry second wave. Is this the beginning of the end or just the end of the beginning? And how can we get through the next few months with the minimum of damage? Before we start, we promised a bit of good news for Patreon backers. As of this week, your edition of Oh God, What Now? is supersized. We're adding an extra topic at the end of the show exclusively for you. This week, we're going to be putting together our imaginary cast for the coronavirus series of The Crown, which should be going out on Netflix in about 2028. <laughs> Who will play Boris? Who will step up to the meaty role of Matt Hancock? Who will play Dishy Rishi and Princess <laughs> Nutnuts? You'll have to be a Patreon backer to find out. So if you're not yet signed up, search Patreon, Oh God, What Now? podcast. All our usual benefits like ad-free podcasts, mugs and t-shirts, new designs available now, plus the extended 12-inch remix edition of the podcast too. So Boris Johnson has sacked his boss baby, Dominic Cummings, <laughs> and he's promising a fresh start as soon as he can get out of self-isolation. But is he capable of one? Um Ian, back in May, Johnson sort of damaged his reputation and the effectiveness of the lockdown to save Cummings from his Barnard Castle snafu. Um, why let him go now over something that seems uh, far more trivial and not then? Because it seems like the level of vitriol that he was throwing around the, the cabinet, uh, the parliamentary party and number 10 itself just became so severe that things finally brought to a head. I've got to say, I'm kind of surprised by that. Like, the lesson that I, I took from that Barnard Castle stuff was there is nothing that will ever happen that will lead him to get rid of Cummings. And that must mean that he's completely reliant on him for his electoral strategy, for his political program, for any kind of intellectual substance to an administration doesn't seem to have any of it in the first place. So on that basis, I was really very confident he wouldn't get rid of Cummings. And, and I was wrong about that. So clearly, what happened is that the amount of just splattering negative leaking that goes on, the amount of just aggression and attack, which he's always been very, very famous for. I mean, he was hated by, you know, lots of the sort of Brexit Tory MPs in 2016 during the referendum campaign. That finally, when it wasn't being directed out at liberals and judges and, and Remainers and blah, blah, was just relentlessly brought inwards until it was finally being activated against the prime minister himself. And clearly, you just reached a point where the straw broke the camel's back. Also, he's rude about his bird, wasn't he? 
<laughs> you don't you don't say that about my bird. Apparently <laughs> he slagged off his mum, yeah. It's been reported that Cummings was, was actually spending most of his time in Operation Moonshot, uh, the quest for a vaccine. What, as far as you can tell, was he actually doing every day that would therefore be sort of lost by his departure? Did he have some sort of brilliant project that will now uh, go to rust? No, um, and it's very unclear exactly what he was doing. I mean, you hear lots of the reports from people who are now finally talking. I mean, these guys, you know, around him were sort of like hostages while he was there and are now throwing off everything they can find to say about him. But for a lot of it, they were just saying he wasn't even in the office an awful lot of the time. But what, I mean, the, the thing that I took from that project was, do you remember um, he was setting up this kind of Star Trek mission control center in the cabinet office? Uh, where they were going to have sort of various banks of workers all, you know, with him at the starship helm. And the the point that really got me on that was these rolling screens of data that they wanted to have up, which basically would look like share prices or, you know, currency markets. Um, and on that, you would have infection rates and death and death rates. Now, the, the thing that's amazing about that is that is not real-time information that you need for a COVID pandemic. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. You know, the information you require is much, much slower than that. So it spoke to this kind of sci-fi approach to the issue where he likes to think in terms of, you know, really big IT projects rather than what is actually required to fix it. And from that alone, I would simply conclude that whatever he was up to with Moonshot would not have been worth much in the first place. And Johnson launched his great reset uh, from isolation with a major gaffe by rubbishing Scottish devolution in a call with Tory MPs. Uh, there's a, a fantastic piece by spectators Alex Massey, who called him a clear and present danger to the country who purports to lead, a poison whose ignorance, carelessness and indifference promises Gotterdammerung and the destruction of the United Kingdom itself. Is this a good start? <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. But I mean, what the, they don't care, right? If they cared, they wouldn't have made him prime minister in the first place. They wouldn't have made him leader of the Conservative Party. Like, they do not give a damn about the union. They do not give a damn about Scotland. The only extent, I think, to which he thinks that, you know, you, he doesn't want Scottish independence is because no one wants to go down as the prime minister who's in charge when Scottish independence happened. But these... I'm kind of haunted from years back. I remember talking to the Scottish nationalist. He said that, you know, we'll succeed when English nationalism becomes a thing, when that becomes something that the English think of in a much more, in a much stronger way than they think of their British identity. And that has happened. And it has not just happened in general. It's happened to the Conservative Party. That was part of the process that led Boris Johnson there. So now, you know, each time he speaks, he degrades the union. He makes it harder for the union to survive. But we have known that from the very beginning, and this is just a continuation of that trend. Naomi, a lot of Remainers were angry uh, on the day last week that Cummings had left before carrying the can for the consequences of Brexit. But do you think anyone ever will stand up and say, sorry, guys, this is a disaster, this is on me? <laughs> um, or is that just sort of one of the kind of, is that like sort of a, a bedtime story for Romaniacs? <laughs> Dorian, I think there's more chance of Ian not swearing for the rest of this show <laughs> than there is of that happening. It, these guys, for them, there will always be someone else to blame. Uh, you know, that we didn't Brexit fast enough, that the EU stopped us making a success of Brexit, that the virus got in the way, you know, probably China virus or something they'll start coming out with next. You know, these are self-aggrandizing people who have absolutely no concept of humility. 
And Nigel Farage is upset the Cummings' departure presages are clawing down on Brexit and not the no-deal Ragnarok that he graves. Do you think it will actually make any difference as our deal expert to whether to, to whether there's a deal or not, you know, whether Cummings is, is, is in the yeah. house? Yeah, I mean, I think it might have an impact only insofar as Johnson won't want to give any credence to the Kane, Cummings, Farage, Cabal claim that he is somehow soft on Brexit without them. Uh, and that that was, you know, part of the, the friction in why they left. So in some senses, he will probably want to be seen to be as hardline as them on Brexit. But uh, I think that's more likely to come in the form of positioning and spinning up concessions he will claim he extracted from Ursula von der Leyen rather than by pursuing no deal. I do still think he does want a deal. And so uh, hopefully that that is still all on track. And I've no reason yet to believe that it isn't other than, you know, old Govey telling schools to stock up on long life food products for children, just in case there is no deal Brexit next year. And I mean, for anyone kind of you know, studying number 10, Cummings was the sort of drama queen around every, which everything sort of world. With him gone, what are the new rival power centres in the government? Is anybody going to sort of take on his role or are we going to see a different kind of um, divisions? Well, I, I doubt there's anyone who will quite fit the kind of angry gonad persona uh, quite as well as as he did, um, but there are emerging some new fault lines in the the power battle, and that's for sure. In Parliament, rather than you know in in Number Ten and in government, remember there's more than fifty backbenchers now getting behind Steve Baker and Graham Brady, who are trying to thwart any extension to the lockdown uh, that might be coming to the Commons in early December if we haven't got our under control, and that's. 10 more names than the 1922 committee would need for a leadership challenge. Um, so there's muscle flexing happening there. In number 10, there's the, the new trio of Allegra Stratton, Manira Merza, and of course, Carrie Simmons herself, whose influence is, is definitely on the up. And of course, Sunak continues to be bigged up by party grandees and uh, has the, well, it certainly appears to have the, the strong backing of Lord Ashcroft, you know, major, major party donor, uh, incredibly wealthy individual fully behind him, putting him in pole position to be next leader. And, you know, I guess it's worth noting that none of those names I've mentioned is anything other than a Brexiter. You know, these are all people that are, are pretty behind Brexit, although on a, on a bit of a spectrum from ultra, ultra hard Brexiter to slightly softer, more Cameronite. Minnie, for a year we've been saying that Cummings does Johnson's thinking for him because somebody has to. What does Johnson actually want to do with his premiership now? What vision uh, has he not been able to execute yet? You know, I, I just don't think Johnson has a clear vision himself. You know, what do we know about him? We know that he's extremely swayed by public opinion, that he's easily led by the people who surround him and by his advisors, which which doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's just as Naomi says, he's surrounded by, you know, Brexiteers and people that he's put put in place but he's not someone who has clear convictions like previous prime ministers and I think you can really see that in his approach to pretty much everything you know numerous u-turns last minute decisions you know even the last minute decision to get rid of Cummings when it was obvious he should have done so ages ago so in terms of his own vision I don't think there is one but like Ian you know for a long time I thought you know it's Dominic Cummings must have this big master plan that we just don't know about and something shocking is going to come out and it's all going to be really complicated but it's quite obvious that Dominic Cummings isn't the only person who has been in the driving seat 
um, you know, his role was clearly one of that of a drama creator and distractor. And Boris Johnson still got people like David Frost who are holding a lot of power on key issues like EU negotiations. Um, so I think the immediate effect will be a calmer politics outwardly, or at least a return to more expected practices. And inwardly, I would assume that Johnson will try and mend some of the rifts created by Cummings if he can. And some Northern Tory MPs, uh, a touch naively, I think, uh, were worried that Cummings leaving will hurt the levelling up agenda, which meant so much to him. Um, <laughs> what, what evidence do you see of that agenda being a priority with or without him, of, of actually somebody putting kind of some action behind those words? None. There is none. <laughs> no clear plans, I would say. I think if that was really part of their previous agenda, then the response to the pandemic would have encompassed the needs of communities outside of London. You know, they wouldn't have been in that big battle with Andy Burnham. And there are questions now about whether the pandemic has further widened the north-south divide. I, th- I think it was the Tory mayor of Tees Valley this morning on, on the Today programme saying that patience is wearing thin, even though Boris Johnson has said he's still committed to levelling up. Um, in the coming few weeks, Rishi Sunak will announce investments in the spending review, but will they be enough? Um, Tory MPs are also concerned that the Green Industrial Revolution is a return to David Cameron's Hugger Husky days, and that will mean the South is prioritised over the North. And, and just in general, spending review investments are likely to be really slow burn. There won't be an immediate effect. So the Tories are going to have to think hard about what they can sell to the North to show them that they are the priority, uh, unless the North isn't actually a priority. What do you make of the Green Industrial Revolution, which is, of course, one of those, uh, this climate change is one of the areas you know, in, in which Johnson isn't very Trumpian, and it seemed like quite an ambitious package of measures. Um, were you impressed? No. Look, I think a green industrial revolution is very much needed. But what the government has set out here is a a 10 point plan, which isn't really a plan to tackle the climate crisis. And really importantly, it only has four billion funding behind it, which just isn't enough. Like if you compare that with the fact that the government is spending 27 billion on new roads or that Germany is investing 36 billion in its own green stimulus package, you know, this plan is not interconnected between departments departments who often undermine each other's climate goals and it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. What the government has actually done is steal a slogan from people who are interested in climate justice and use that as a sticking plaster. So not very impressed on this end. Ian, you wrote in the Washington Post that the government uh, will be stuck with populism in the shape of Brexit and Northern MPs, um, Northern Tory MPs' appetite for culture wars. Um, Will the government at least start sort of fewer fights with the BBC, civil service, etc., without Cummings being all fighty? Or will, will they just step up, find somebody else to, to take that on? Like at the moment, there's some evidence that that might be the case. And you can see that by the fact that you had uh, ministers going on Good Morning Britain, right, which is blacklisted among basically almost all other journalists by Cummings. Um, to very little effect. So there's clearly some movement. And and you also saw um, more of an openness to at least, at the very least, talking to parts of the Tory parliamentary party. Now, I know that doesn't seem like something that a prime minister should be celebrated for, but certainly their bunker mentality had riven down to the point that not only were they at war with other government departments, they were also at war occasionally with members of their own parliamentary party. So there's a bit less of a sort of vitriolic attack dog approach towards things. But the fundamental mechanics of this haven't changed. They still have to celebrate 
Brexit. And Brexit is about to start hitting us in practical terms rather than the terms that it's hit us so far. And that's going to happen very, very soon. You know, that's going to happen in six to five weeks. We're going to start seeing the effects of that. That will continue. And again, they cannot blame themselves for that. So they're going to have to blame someone else. The people they will blame will be the people that they always blame, the Europeans, the Remainers, etc. And then there's the broader problem, I think, which is ultimately you cannot allow for politics to go back to being about policies and economics. Because as soon as you do that electoral alliance that you formed, you know, if you think about the Red Wall seats, and that's why those MPs right now, those Red Wall, former Red Wall MPs, are currently writing furious WhatsApps and messages to Downing Street going, don't, you know, they call it don't go woke, by which they mean, you know, don't, don't develop a working human brain that analyzes objective reality. And on that, they need debate to stay on culture war, because that is how that electoral alliance is, is based. That's the foundations upon which it, it exists. So there's these really, you can see that they kind of want to try something else, that they want to get away from some of the warfare. But ultimately, those two deep structural issues on the electoral alliance and on Brexit mean that they're kind of stuck in that straitjacket. I think if you ban the word woke, then sort of modern conservatism uh, would sort of fit on the back of an envelope. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to have any any other ideas. <laughs> I know it's true. It's so fucking tired. I don't think. I honestly, to be honest, any time the word comes up now, I just think I am going to actively switch off my brain so I do not have to experience <laughs> what is about to be said. Well, they switched off their brains before writing it, so <laughs> it's, it's fair enough. In fairness, though, none of the parties seem to have ideas at the moment, and there is a real dearth of vision and thought leadership from our yeah. political class at the moment. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Now it's time for Underrated Overrated, where each week a panellist picks the political figures that deserve their moment in the sun and the ones that should perish in the dark, cold abyss of space. <laughs> in a bold move, Minnie Rahman has gone straight to the core and chosen cabinet ministers. Uh, Minnie, who are your choices? Oh, I think you're right that it was quite bold, but I really just needed to have a public platform to say that the dishy, rishy nonsense has to stop. Uh, so he's my overrated for the week, and that's not just because I do not find him dishy. Um, but I think a lot of the public think that he's got a sensible handle on the economy, but the fact that he's considering bringing E out to help out back after all the evidence is pointing to it being responsible for a spike in the virus gives him a massive boo from me. So thumbs down for Rishi Sunak. Mm -hmm. um, underrated and... Yeah, I was cl clutching at straws, definitely, at this one. Um, <laughs> Getting but, the excuses in early. <laughs> clutching at straws. But I'm going to give Alok Sharma a bit of a shout out here because oh. he it has been the one who has been leading the sort of green recovery initiatives. And obviously, I don't think that they are anywhere near enough to challenge the scale of the climate crisis. And also, the government's not really listening to what a proper green recovery needs to encompass. But I think he should get some credit for pushing the Tories on green jobs and taking us one step towards the right place. What, what I love about what you've just done is I feel like I can see the thought process step by step. You were like, I'm going to go for Rishi Sunak so that I can slag him off a bit. But then, of course, <laughs> I do actually have to say that someone's underrated in this cabinet. And that was my exact thought process, but it just <laughs> needed to be said. <laughs> well, every now and then, about three times a year, we allow somebody to say something nice uh, about the government. So. <laughs> we're definitely done for 2020. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Protocol>. <laughs> Thank you.
Next up, uh, no sooner had Pfizer's share price shot up due to news of a 90% effective vaccine than it dipped again when Moderna announced its own 95% effective vaccine. It's vaccine wars and everybody wins. But how does this change how we should respond to COVID-19 right now as we enter the pandemic's bleak midwinter? Naomi, on a personal level, I mean, has this news made a big difference to how you feel about the pandemic? Has it lifted your spirits? A little bit. um, And that's probably because I was in the sceptical camp about a vaccine, uh, simply because there's never been one developed for any other coronavirus in the past. So it sort of felt like a Herculean task, but, you know, absolutely fair play to the scientists who have made the breakthroughs. And I would also just like to say how wonderful I think it is that that several of them, whether it's the the co-founder of uh, Moderna or the, the, the couple that have uh, got got there with the first vaccine, they're, they're immigrants and they're people of um, mixed parentage and things like that. So I think that's wonderful and a lovely, positive, pro-immigrant story for us. But um, nothing really has changed in my view on the ability of our government to roll it out well. You know, this is going to be the biggest undertaking the NHS has ever, ever had to do. Uh, it's drafting in volunteers. The St. John's Ambulance are having to be upskilled to handle it and, and others as well. And this government is appalling at delivering mega projects. And this is the most important mega project we will have ever, ever, ever delivered. So I'm just not expecting it to go faultlessly or quickly. And I think we just really need to brace ourselves for most of 2021 being fairly locked down. Mm. Are there Brexit related problems regarding the transport and distribution of the vaccine or is or are those going to be are they just going to pull out all the stops to um mm. to remove those well look brexit is set to have a very significant negative impact on the supply of medicines into the country and, and probably food too uh and you know obviously we've as i said we've heard about you know the schools being told to stockpile long life products this week but brexit probably won't be allowed to hamper this vaccine i think they'll work around the ports and fly the stuff in if they have to but of course any and all disruption to trade causes price rises so we can expect to pay a hell of a lot more for our vaccines per dose than we would otherwise have done as you know member of a, a single market um, and I, I think that is a big worry uh, remember in this pandemic no one is safe until everyone is safe and so far we're hearing a lot about the major economies buying up huge numbers of vaccines meaning there are a lot of people probably the majority of humans on the earth living in countries that can't afford or can't get access to the vaccines and that really has to concern all of us so we are going to need to you know as much as of course I'm happy about the breakthroughs I'm a bit more positive that you know life can begin to get back to normal within a slightly more reasonable time frame we need to keep our focus on testing tracing isolating supporting people in communities to isolate if if they need to and fighting the virus at the borders from entering the UK once again once R is under control because the vaccine just simply isn't going to be a substitute for that and certainly not in the short to medium term. Minnie the COVAX organisation aims to guarantee fair and equitable access for every country in the world. Is this going to be a serious moral test for wealthier countries and how they sort of distribute the vaccine? Yeah, definitely. You know, there's no point having a really effective national vaccination programme that undermines a global one because ultimately you will just continue to keep the virus in circulation and risk a repeat cycle of waves and you have to get the global global programme equally right. The problem is that Competition and profit is still so heavily embedded in the production of the vaccine. So some producers of the vaccine have said they won't enforce property rights. You know, Moderna has said that, but they 
have to also share the infrastructure on how to produce it. And unless international governments act to prevent that kind of monopoly, then there will be a gap in access, particularly for lower income countries who also don't have the infrastructure in place or will need to think more carefully about about, about the infrastructure and about their larger populations. And that could really risk um, undermining the global response. And even within this country, um, do you expect to see there's going to be a real sort of an ethical challenge of vaccine distribution? And and after podcasters, of course, who gets prioritised? Do you think that we'll be able to sort of find a, a kind of, you know, a broad consensus that certain kind of, you know, the frontline health workers, vulnerable people, so should get it first? Or do you think this is going to become another, another point of friction with people kind of, um, you know, wanting to push themselves to the front of the queue? Yeah, at first, when I was thinking about this, I thought, no, this is surely going to be really easy to work out. And then I very quickly realised that it's going to be friction all the way. So assuming that we have a vaccine that works, and we have to do some kind of staged vaccination programme, we're talking about making a choice between directly protecting vulnerable people by giving them the vaccine, or reducing overall transmission so that they indirectly benefit. So basically, we're talking about eight-year-olds versus 80-year-olds. And obviously, the government will want to prioritise front care, front frontline healthcare workers, which I would say is right. But then you've also got a whole cohort of people who have been on the front lines in other ways, teachers, shopkeepers, and there are questions about when they get it and how they get it. And then finally, there is a real need to assess properly who the most vulnerable groups are. So we already know that black and Asian communities, migrant communities and other minority groups are at higher risk of deaths too. Public Health England have flagged this numerous times. Vulnerability isn't as simple as as age or pre-existing condition. And I don't know if the government has really thought about how it considers other vulnerability indicators in a vaccination programme. Uh, Ian, has this good news taken some of the heat off a government that made exactly the same mistake it did back in March by instituting a lockdown exactly three weeks late? Yeah, a bit. But also it's just there's a lot of news at the moment. I mean, there was like the American election. I mean, I didn't even fucking notice the lockdown was happening for the first few days because I was trapped in that dreadful CNN advert where the man just endlessly walks through a maze and tries to tear off his own face. Like I was just, we were lost in it, right? And so you just couldn't couldn't see what was happening. Then after that, you've got the Cummings thing. I mean, it just hit almost like a domino. So you kind of, and now here we are, you know, and so it, it, there's just been an awful lot of news. So the truth is, they are fucking getting away with it. Like, I mean, there is not the same degree of outrage for the fact that not only have they made the same mistake again, but also they made the same fucking mistake again. You know, literally having known what happened in the first case, they went and did it all over again without having learned a single lesson. But that's just not there. And, and it is partly, I think, maybe a bit of boredom to do with this issue. But also secondarily, it's just the fact there's just been a lot of news. Um, I've got a couple of liberalism questions for you. Oh, good. I like those. Yeah. Um, so Matt Hancock's uh, refusal to rule out mandatory vaccination led spiked dad Lawrence Fox to say that if Hancock personally tries to inject him, then he'll have to bring four burly police officers with him. Um, sadly, sadly yeah. uh, this is unlikely to happen. But what do you think of the idea of how maybe making vaccines mandatory? Is that is that too much of an infringement on personal liberty or is it justified by the state we're in? You could justify it if you wanted to, like on liberal principles, right? If you if you take like Taylor and Mill's harm principle, the only reason, you know, you can interfere with someone's freedom is in order to prevent harm to others. Like this demonstrably would fall into that kind of calculus, right? 
I don't think you'd want to. I mean, by the time that you have the state forcing its ability to literally sort of inject you with something to, to break to go break your skin, I mean, that's about as as much of a violation as you can get. Um, you wouldn't want to be there. You wouldn't want to be doing anything like that. And I would also suggest that in the broader reasoning behind it of how do you keep the public on board? How do you maintain confidence in the program? That would be a disastrous way to proceed. The, the more sensible kind of liberal approach is usually to say, you don't have to do something to make yourself safe. However, if you choose not to, we can protect other people from the consequences of your action because it's not your freedom we're affecting in that case, it's the freedom of others. So, I mean, the classic example would be the smoking ban, right? Smoking in inside um, spaces, which some liberals would have a problem with and, and could make a legitimate argument against. But nevertheless, you're trying to say, right, you know, the state cannot force you to quit smoking. It's not going to ban cigarettes and take them away from you. But what we can do is say that where there is evidence that your action in smoking affects other people, we can step in to protect them. And in this case, that could be something of saying, well, you can't go to these certain areas if you haven't had the vaccine. And that would put it in much, um, much more tolerable liberal waters than having the state as, as appealing as the image is, knock down Fox's door and force him to take the injection. Penetrated by Matt Hancock. So with, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Naomi. It should not be mandatory. The whole time I was talking, waiting to be <laughs> penetrated by Matt Hancock. But I mean, how would this, how would this work? I mean, do you need, you know, a hundred percent take up? Would there be, I mean, I don't know, would there be zones populated by uh, Lawrence Fox and Ian Brown you know where they where they could they could, they couldn't go to certain places. Like what 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 happens to the people that don't want to be vaccinated? I, I sort of feel like everything you're saying, Dorian, is just like a reality TV idea that I really need to see. And definitely <laughs> one of them is like the COVID slum with F Fox and Brown and see what they get up to. And when they want to get out, when they want to get out, they just have to shout, "Penetrate me, Matt Hancock!" <laughs> and then they're allowed out. <laughs> Um, I think a lot of that is going to it's going to be to do with the, the degree of herd immunity. I mean, I know herd immunity has a, a bad name on the basis of mostly being a product in sort of new circles of complete lunatics, but that is also something that you develop because of vaccines. And I don't understand enough. I mean, my my understanding was that you're looking at about eighty percent in order for it to be effective. So it's about the degree of take up before that stuff would have an impact on others. But uh, health warning on everything I just said because I'm not an expert on it and I'm not entirely on top of it. Um, social media companies uh, have talked about clamping down on anti-vaxxer content after years of being the sort of main conduit for it after the, um, you know, the Daily Mail and Private Eye stopped. Is there a sound, <laughs> sound argument for saying that anti-vaxxers can, you know, do what they like with their own skin, but they have no right to spread disinformation in the public health emergency? And that, that actually, I suppose, maybe we're back to the harm principle here, that, that this, this, this is not a free speech issue. Yeah, I think this falls into the same category as the first, right? That, you know, on, on a liberal sort of... Uh, now, I, I feel like I'm not allowed to say the phrase classical liberal because everyone just thinks... But nevertheless, <laughs> on a classical liberal basis, you could obviously argue either side of, of that issue and it would fall within the remit. But you would kind of want to be more moderate than that. I think for reasons that, if nothing else, it is just that sense of you don't want to create 
you don't want to perpetuate the narrative that they themselves are trying to pursue of, you know, there's these shadowy forces of the state and the social media companies, they're all in it together. They're trying to silence us. They're trying to censor us. You really don't want to be censoring people. What you can be doing on social media is you can be doing what they've been doing very effectively with, you know, the president of the United States for the last three weeks of basically putting warnings underneath messages, which I think does go some way towards helping. You also want, I think, I mean, looking at the kind of guys that you're getting on, say, TalkSport, I'm thinking particularly of Julia Hartley Brewer's program, where they're really actively, with, with people who have doctorates in a completely separate subject, but it gives them this veneer of credibility, actively stoking disinformation. I do think at this point, you want to see a bit more from Ofcom, or at least some, some examples that they're, they're taking seriously what's happening, given the severity of the circumstances in which it is taking place. And hopefully with that, like you wouldn't rule anything out. If you really get a, a, a mass refusal of take-up, then you would have to go in this direction. But for where we are right now, where it is still right now, you know, definitely a minority pursuit, you would want to, I think, be going a, a bit more softly than actually just censoring them outright. Minnie, talking of uh, Julie Hartley Brewer, the anti-lockdown contingency uh, made Sweden their poster boy uh, for its sort of relaxed approach. Now Sweden's U-turned and instituted new rules, including a rule of eight, um, as cases shoot up to over 4,000 a week. Is this sort of the last stand for the, the herd immunity crew now that, now that it's obviously not working in Sweden? Yeah, I mean, I would hope so. What can they point to now? Because Sweden quite clearly fucked it, didn't they? <laughs> My understanding is that um, a lot of the rules that they had in place were voluntary. And, and I think we've talked about this before, that um, I don't think that anything that is solely voluntary communicates to the public that there is real risk and urgency. You know, people's minds just don't work in that way. So I think it's a really good thing that they finally recognised that their strategy wasn't working. You know, the the UK reached that conclusion much earlier and we all know that we're the last to do anything. So I, I think it's a good move for Sweden and it's good for us because it, there's nothing else for anyone to point to in terms of the herd immunity crew. We've raised this point before, but it really has been fantastic, hasn't it, watching Sweden fuck something up? It's yeah. just like the best <laughs> in class who's always the do-good of getting everything right. And then you're just like, oh, finally, finally, you've been morons about something. It's so satisfying. <laughs> the second wave in the US is looking nightmarish. I saw one, perhaps the most chilling headline I've seen this year said that big Thanksgiving celebrations will be followed by small funerals. Joe Biden has set up a COVID task force. We still have two more months of Trump to get through. Do you think he's just going to kill a lot of people on his way out? Is is it is it sort of abandon all hope for a, for a COVID strategy until January twentieth? Yeah, I mean, I'm really, it's awful to say, but I think that is likely to be the case. You know, he's not suddenly going to start having a, a sensible attitude. I think there were some reports earlier this week from people like Dr. Anthony Fauci saying that the federal government has checked out and that he Trump hadn't attended a task force meeting in five months. So I assume it's going to be pretty much more of the same from them. And obviously that will impact too on delivering the vaccine, you know, if it comes before Biden is in place. If they're already checked out, they're definitely not going to be prepared for what's needed to roll out a, a mass vaccination programme. So it does look pretty scary over there. It's like um, It's like people were saying about contagion. Uh, the movie back in March, that it was sort of far bleaker and more pessimistic in terms of actually the the effect that the virus in the movie has. But it was wildly optimistic about the capacity of the government to to sort of step up 
distribute the vaccine and so on. Yeah, and everyone had PPE in that film. (laughs) (laughs) It's not so bad. It swings and roundabouts with that film, I think. (laughs) Finally, Naomi, if these vaccines are as effective as advertised, um, when do you think we will roughly be back to normal? What seems like a realistic timeline? Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, we, we've been hearing lots of stories about the the millions of, of units of the vaccine that have been ordered and how far ahead the UK is in terms of ordering so many of them. But uh, remember, it's two doses, so you have to cut most of those in half. And as I said earlier, I'm you know not confident that we can do the rollout as efficiently as and effectively as we're going to need to. And I, I often sort of think, like, who really knows what's going on, seeing as the government definitely fucking don't. Um, and I think Google must be amongst those that have got the best data on all of this. You know, they're seeing where people travel. They see what symptoms people are Googling, et cetera, et cetera. And they have mothballed their new office in King's Cross. Um, so they'd done a big bit of investment. It was all completely ready, uh, all of the equipment's in, and they've just thrown plastic sheets over the whole lot of it. Um, they had, uh, I think, around... June or July, I think before we came out of the first lockdown, had told their staff globally, don't expect to be back in the office before July 2021. And none of their signals to me seem to infer that we're going to be back to normal within the next six months. But hopefully this time next year, we will be looking forward to having a a more normal Christmas. Hopefully definitely not followed by small funerals. That's something to put on a Christmas card, isn't it? Season's greetings, Season. one and all. I, I Along with penetrated by Matt Hancock. These are, these are going to be Naomi's two sets of Christmas An angry gonad, yeah. <laughs> Finally, if you like emails, and who doesn't, you'll love but your emails. <laughs> Each week, we... every time you've introduced this segment, you've adopted that quite weird voice. And is that, is that just going to continue indefinitely? Well, I've been hoping to get some advertising work out of this podcast. <laughs> so I think I need to be more upbeat. Each week, we pick some messages from our Patreon backers to discuss with the panel. This week, Michael Hewitt asks, in the current political landscape, is there really any justification for there to be more than two parties? Uh, presumably he means, um, for the SNP, get really angry. <laughs> he means like UK-wide. <laughs> um, they wouldn't like that. Should the Liberal Democrats admit defeat and both major factions act like Homer Simpson slowly fading into the garden hedge, the SDF side of the party to Labour, the Orange Bookers to the Conservatives, would they have any more power to drag either or both parties back towards the centre or would their voices just be drowned out by internal tribal bickering? Naomi, this one has your name written all over it. Oof, it's a very, very good question. Well done, Michael. Um... If you want to live in a multi-party democracy, then you need PR. And of course, I would prefer to live in a country with more than two parties, but we don't yet have PR. Um, So what needs to happen? Well, I mean, the Lib Dems need to pick a bloody side. They did that in 1997 when they said they wouldn't work with the Conservatives and they snuggled up to new Labour um, and it worked out well for them. And by 2005, they had 60 plus MPs. So the Lib Dems just need to accept once and for all that equidistance doesn't work for them. 
has never fucking worked for them and will never work for them. And once they've accepted that, they need to pick a side and clearly they have far more in common with the left than they do with the right. And if they can accept that and acknowledge their shared interests, then I think we're into the territory of a progressive alliance. And if they can't accept it, then yes, absolutely, they do need to split into and, and bugger off and join Labour and the Conservatives. On the progressive alliance side, they're not the power that they once were and they don't bring as much to the table as they did say this time last year, another poll this week put the Lib Dems on 5%. So they're now so feeble that they have much less to offer Labour than they did last year. You know, even in parts of the southwest of England, Labour are ahead of the Lib Dems in seats that have never, ever been in play for Labour. But I do caveat that because together with the Greens, and if you remember last year, the the alliance that did happen on the progressive side was between Plaid Greens and the Lib Dems. Labour didn't take part. With the Greens, the Lib Dems can bring pressure to bear on Labour in an alliance and push things like electoral reform and maybe, dare we say it, dare we, dare we dream of a closer relationship with Europe. <laughs> and, and I think that's important because it, we have to ask ourselves the question, can Labour get a functional majority in their own right at the moment? And the answer just mathematically is no. They are going to need a bigger swing than Blair got in 97. And now they have to contend with something Blair didn't have to contend with, which is the whole issue of Scotland and Scottish independence and boundary changes, both of which, of course, will favour the Tories in a general election. Uh, so, yeah, great question, Michael. Um, basically, they need to either shit or get off the pot. <laughs> Thanks, Naomi. Another classic Naomi Christmas card. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the impact that the Lib Dems have on other parties by putting pressure on one side, right? Like, you get it with the Tories, with UKIP putting pressure, or, you know, historically on the right and putting them to that position. I mean, it's not always the case. It's the question sort of suggested that the Lib Dems always pull Labour towards the centre. Like, if you think about, you know, during the Iraq war, I mean, I know this isn't a left-right thing, but it was a more radical position to take to oppose the war, and that put pressure on Labour to make it respond to parts that the leadership is trying to ignore at that moment. And I think that works, can often work, more effectively when that pressure is coming from a different party than it would if it was coming internally within the Labour Party. Um, and just to add on the, the pact with the Greens and the Progressive Alliances, that last time around didn't actually go that well for the Green Party in terms of their membership. Um, a lots, of pe- lots of people in the Green Party were quite opposed to a Progressive Alliance that would, in some places, oust Labour, mem- Labour MPs. And I think there has to be a real consideration about what the platform is that all of these parties can unite on if they're, if the real incentive is to get rid of the Tories. And I think that work has to start now and it has to start quickly. And I, I just don't know if it's, if it's actually happening behind the scenes anywhere. It is a little bit, um, and you're you're completely right. You know, the Greens, I think, have been overly generous to the other parties uh, in in each of the last few elections and by elections, uh, and they they are owed a lot from the other parties. There is some work going on. It's obviously only going to work if Labour get behind it. Um, and I think for the Greens, maybe even more so than the Lib Dems, actually, the goal for them, I don't think so much is about getting rid of the Tories as it is about getting electoral reform. Uh, and the pressure we're seeing from uh, the Greens on issues that make votes matter is even stronger than it has traditionally been from the Lib Dems. Yeah, absolutely. And I would assume that Caroline Lucas would like a friend in Parliament at some point. <laughs> And that's all for this week. My thanks to Ian. Oh, thank you very much. Minnie. 
Thank you. And Naomi. Thank you. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster, 2020 repolished version by Corner Shop, and the usual thanks to our latest Patreon backers. And stay tuned at the very end for a preview of our new extended version for Patreon backers only. Firstly, happy 50th birthday to Michael Wilson. Susie brought you the Patreon as your present. And thanks and hello also to Fiona Brown, uh, Ryan Blood, incredible name, and David Matson. Hello and thanks from me to Lars Hinberg, Andrew Reed, and Deborah Crew. And a big, oh God, what now? Shout out from me to Gerhard Blab, Una Fleming, and Ronnie Hawes. And thanks from me to Ian Udale, Sleepy Bookworm, and Francois Rallier. Take care and see you soon. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith, Minnie Rahman and Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Now, welcome to the first Oh God, What Now bonus bit for Patreons. The curtains have closed on the main episode and we're all backstage, the makeup room filling with vape smoke and booze. (laughs) (laughs) With with the new series of The Crown out this week, we are asking the panel who they think would play the cabinet in a series covering the coronavirus crisis. Um, I was looking through and it turns out there have been so many, as with Game of Thrones, there have been so many actors already in The Crown that I am allowing the reuse of certain actors, because otherwise we'll just run out. <laughs> so to start with Boris Johnson, the problem that I noticed in the uh, in the James Graham Brexit drama, whose title I can never remember, um, was that the person playing Boris Johnson just couldn't couldn't sort of match the performativeness of the real Boris Johnson. Uh, mm. That he just seemed a little bit like a kind of uh, student sketch show version, as opposed to nailing the full absurdity of the man. So how do you kind of how do you play somebody who is who is constantly playing a version of himself which is quite different to the apparently quite shy lovable no uh, not lovable shy troubled sensitive man that uh, that he is in private There was that interview right with um Michael Sheen after he played Tony Blair in that thing where I, where he sort of said that the job isn't really it's not impersonation he sort of he suggests that basically in the first scene you impersonate. So you know he does this. If you look at that old um, that it's, well shit, it was actually about Diana, wasn't it? Um, that film way back when. Um, and he plays Tony Blair with the sort of the wide eye bit, and he he absolutely impersonates the shit out of him for the first thirty seconds, and then he goes into something else. And he was sort of saying, "You've got to do that bit so the audience gets that that's the guy," mm. and then you can just go for something deeper that's trying to get, like encapsulate something about the mannerisms rather than an impersonation. I'm guessing that's what you'd want to do in this case. Yeah, like a good cartoonist, a caricaturist, they pick one feature uh, and and really, you know, rather than sort of do a very good likeness of somebody, they sort of grotesque that one thing that this person's renowned for. And I think that's why uh, Matt Lucas character uh, actor could do Johnson better than anyone else because he does sort of really ham up that caricature of Boris of himself yeah I also think that once you kind of get the the appearance right you know Boris Johnson's got a very specific look about him very untidy looks like he hasn't slept for about three years kind of vibe once mm-hmm. you get that right I think a lot of it could 
could kind of go under the radar and you could underplay some of the other aspects because he's quite a unique looking person isn't he really it would be obvious who mm. he is straight away mm. yeah the funny thing is i remember the deal with Stephen And that was a taster of the new extended 12-inch edition of Oh God, What Now? available exclusively to our Patreon backers. If you want to hear the rest, and of course you do, then search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast, sign up, and you'll get access immediately. We hope you enjoy it. See you next week.